Good morning. Thanks, worship team. That was great. Um, it's good to see you all here this morning. Welcome. Um, we've got a few things to talk about, but this has been an exciting weekend already. Um, if you haven't met uh, Pastor David Wick and his wife, um, Pat, it is, a, it is a real treasure and a blessing to meet them. Um, and it's been fun to meet them together because they complement each other well. I think we've been laughing harder than we have in the past weeks, and so it has been a true blessing. I want to talk a little bit about um, Pastor Wick, and um, if you didn't get the papers coming in the door, one thing you went over during our Sunday school hour was this five-step process from IPM. So he is a part of this IPM organization that we decided to go through to find our next intern pastor here, um, and he went through kind of the process, and it's it's a phenomenal process, I think, um, and it's going to be a challenging process for our church, uh, but I think the end result we're all on board with of it's going to get us in a great spot um, for calling our next um, full-time pastor, and so we're excited about that. The screen up here is on the back side of that paper, is he has like a, a devotional guide for following the sermon some walkthrough stuff. And so if you got the paper, it's on the back. If you're a techie person and want to scan the barcode up there, go for it. Um, so that, that's what that is. Um, I'll, I'll also share a little bit that uh, Pastor Wick has a ton of experience. And so one of my kind of desires for this weekend was I just want to pick his brain as much as I can. Just kind of find out some things. It's so nice having a pastor walk through the doors that we're not going to scare him off. <laughs> I love that. So um, it's been a real treat to get to know him. Um, I did ask him yesterday, why? Why do, you, why do you keep doing this? He has at least, I think, five different churches that he's been an intern pastor at. He's had a long legacy of serving other churches. Um, he served at Riverview Baptist for, I think, around 14 years. Um, and why? Why keep doing it? And um, I'm going to say that his wife really encouraged him to find something to do, and we're going to call that um, a calling from the Lord, <laughs> and so we feel very called, or we feel very blessed that he is called to, to continue in this, but it, is, it has been a treat to have him, and so please stay after church. We're going to have a potluck. If you didn't bring any food, that is totally fine. There, there's, I'm sure, more than enough down there, and, and we'll take some time just to to greet and going to be real informal, no, no formal meet meetings following church, just spend some time getting to know Pastor Wick. Um, with that said, um, we've also had another pastor that has really helped us for the last few months. Um, it is, it's a burden to find pulpit supply, it's a burden to find someone that can come in and, and, and fill and understand where our church is at, and by just the true grace of God, we've had a, a man named uh, Pastor Lee Smith, not, not to be confused with our former Pastor Lee Boland, but Lee Smith, and he's come from Rochester, and he makes that roughly two-hour trip. Um, all, all, the, all the weeks that, that he can come, you know, we've, or all the weeks that we've asked him, he tries to make it, and um, I think after the first time speaking here, he came to the deacons and just said, um, I understand where your church is at, and I've served a lot of churches in, in maybe hurting spots or going through some difficult things. He said, any Sunday you need me to fill that pulpit, I will do the best to make it work. And it was such a blessing and such a, a burden lifted off of our shoulders to focus on other things. And so it has been a real treat to have Pastor Lee Smith come from Rochester. He is coming maybe for his last time next Sunday. And so we just wanted as just a, a, a blessing to him just to give him um, some cards of encouragement, some thank you cards from, from us, maybe some gift cards for his travel or whatever, um, and just want to be able to present that to him next week. So if, if you want to put together a card, uh, if your small group wants to do it, if you have kids that want to make their own cards, there's a basket in our church office, um, and it just says his name on there, and so you can put it in there, and then at the end of the service next week, you know, we'll just, we'll just tell him, just thank you for for meeting this huge need that we had, and, um, and yeah, and we'll give that to him. So there's a lot of announcements, but I think I covered come the basic things today. So let, let's read some scripture, let's pray, and then I'm going to give you a moment just to say hi to those around you. So let's read out a psalm. Psalm 108. 
My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. God, it doesn't matter our circumstances. It doesn't matter our bad decisions, our conflicts, things that we bring on ourselves or things that just come our way. You are good. You are faithful. You're always there for us, God. You're not changing. Your truth is truth. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are always worthy of praise. God, and we thank you that you're accepting of our worship. As flawed as it is, um, you accept it. You hear from us. It's just amazing, God, that you would be so holy, so set apart, and yet desire to, to interact with, with us. And we are so, so messed up at times. Um, we just don't get things right. So God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your design. We thank you for um, how you've created this church body, our individual body here, but then your, your larger scale global church. God, we thank you for your design in that. We thank you for um, the family aspect um, that you create in your church body. And we thank you that um, whether we're <clears throat> up here playing music or preaching or cleaning up the dishes after potluck. Those are all ways that we can serve you and glorify you, God. You're amazing, God. We thank you for, for calling us and, and winning us and paying our, our debt. And we thank you that you use us then to share that wonderful message with the world around us. God, this morning, there are so many things going on in our, our lives, so many things we think about, but God, would you captivate us this morning? Would you be uh, where our focus is? Would you be the desires of our hearts this morning? And will we take great joy in the relationship that you offer us through your son? And would we worship you together as one body this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up and why don't you greet someone around you for a little bit before the next songs? Well, it's good to be here amongst my own kind. I said uh, the first Sunday I was in Kirkhoven, Minnesota, I looked out at that congregation. There was a row of little kids there. And you have to understand, Kirkhoven is all, it's Swedes and Norwegians. Okay? And I saw all these little blonde, blue-eyed kids, and I thought, I'm amongst my own people. It's interesting. Different in Philly. In Chicago, it's all good, though. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, may we, in our thoughts, set your name apart, your holy name, remembering that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts from our thoughts and your ways from our ways. All you do is good. And you are holy. Lord, we pray that your kingdom will come in our lives. Lord Jesus, reign in us. May you find in our hearts that obedience to your Holy Spirit that your holy angels have in heaven. May we look to you to discern your will. May we look to your word to understand how to do what you want us to do. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and direct us, and guide us. May you find in our hearts that instant obedience 
that your angels have. We pray, Lord, that you would meet our needs, meet the needs of this congregation, Lord. Where there are hearts that are hurting, we pray that you would bring peace and healing. Lord, where there is sin and pride, we pray that you would break us down and convict us. Lord, forgive us our failings, our sins, our disobedience. And help us to be gracious to others, remembering that you've shown grace to us. And Lord, don't bring us to the test where we recognize our faith is weak. Help us to resist temptation. We recognize that this church is your church. This world belongs to you. And you reign forever. Help us to give you the glory in everything that we say and we think and we do. May that be true of the service of worship, Lord. May you, may you find in this service what we offer you today, something that pleases you. These favors we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So a long time ago in, in Philadelphia, as I said yesterday to some of you, if I come here to be your interim pastor, you'll learn more about Philadelphia than you ever wanted to know. Um, I'm, I used to be able to get WOR on the radio out of New York. And on weekday nights from 9.15 until 10, the American humorist Gene Shepard had a talk show. He didn't talk to people, he just talked. Gene Shepard, by the way, is the guy who created the stories that became, came together in that movie, A Christmas Story, where the kid wants the Red Rider BB gun. That's Gene Shepard. He told a story one night that I'm going to, I don't know it word for word, but I, I'm going to try to share it as he shared it. It was a news story that he picked up, and he, and he read it and made some comments on it. There was a lady who wrote to uh, a newspaper column that was about pet problems. A veterinarian wrote this, and she wanted to know. She said, I had a little canary, a little canary by the name of Cheep Cheep, and he was the happiest little bird, and he sang his little heart out, and he was such a wonderful little pet. And I used to clean his, kept his cage nice and clean. And, and one day I, I put the vacuum cleaner hose into the bottom of his cage to put up all the little dirt and all the little seeds that he spilled there. And then all of a sudden there was some <laughs> like that. Cheap Cheap was gone. And I thought, oh my, oh my goodness, she realized what had happened. She said, I opened up the vacuum cleaner quickly and the, the dust bag in there and I, and I cut it open and, I, and he was all covered with dirt and dust and he wasn't making any sound, but he, I could still feel his little heart beating. And so I ran into the kitchen and I turned on the cold water and I put him under the sink and I, I washed him off and, I, and he was starting to shiver. And, oh, it was too warm. And so I turned it over to hot and got hot. Oh, I almost burnt my hand. Oh, that was too hot. And, and so then I went back to the cold again, and I got him some more cold and then some more hot, and then I got him really good and drenched and clean. Now it was all wet, so I got a hairdryer out, and I held it up, and I held him under the hairdryer until all of his little feathers stuck out like a little fur ball. And then I put him back in his cage, and sure enough, his little feet grabbed the little thing, and he, but he, she said, ever since then, he doesn't sing anymore. He just sits and stares. Gene Shepard said, there's a lot of that going on. N not a lot of singing, just a lot of sitting and staring. Sometimes life hits you like a bus, doesn't it? And I, I have a feeling that's what's happened here. We just get hit like with a bus. It happened to King David, 1 Samuel chapter 6. David, at this point in his life, is still an outlaw. And I've often thought about if we really understand who David was. I, I think a lot of people have an idea that he was like a suburban megachurch pastor. And I don't think he was like that at all. I think he was a lot more like Pancho Villa. He was a bandit. He was an outlaw. And he traveled with a really rough crew. It is soon kill you as look at you. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking hyperbole. These are people who killed people with their bare hands. He was really kind of a scary person. Tough character. 
And he was on the run from King Saul for years. And finally, he went to live with basically the enemy in Gath. And he'd been there before. That was a mistake when he showed up alone. But when he showed up the second time, it was with his whole crew, and he was treated with respect. And the king of Gath decided he might be useful because here he had a bodyguard. And so David served as sort of a right-hand man for a while. But then David said, well, it's a little costly to have you here. Why don't you give us a village? So the king of Gath gave him this village of Ziklag, where he, is, he and his crew could operate from. And what they were doing was actually going out and attacking the enemies of the Jewish people, and pillaging them and stealing from them and so on. But the king of Gath didn't know that. He thought he was raiding Jewish villages, and he wasn't doing that. But this went on for some time, and then, as you recall, he got called up to be part of a raid and a war against the Israelites. Fortunately, he was delivered from that. The other Philistines didn't want to have anything to do with David because they remembered that he was the guy who'd killed Goliath. So they made the king of Gath send David home. And so David and his men go home thinking, ah, we pulled it off. He was really at the peak of his career as a bandit. But when they got to Ziklag, well, let's read the story. For Samuel 30, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. And their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. And by the way, they started out that way. His whole crew was made up of malcontents and people who were angry and bitter. So it isn't surprising that when this happened, they directed their anger against him. They were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And they were planning to stone him. But David, it says, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And I've read that hundreds of times. And just recently started thinking about what in the world that meant. It tells us what he did. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But it doesn't tell us how. And I thought, first of all, I wish it told us how. So that when we get run over by the bus of life, when we get the cold water and the hot water and the hairdryer, and we're just sitting and staring, we know how to do this. And then I thought, wait a minute. One of the primary, well, the primary author of the Psalms is David. Now, I'm not one of these higher critical guys that think, oh, well, you know, the only real psalm that David wrote was Psalm 18. Oh, come on. The, the, the Jewish rabbis throughout the centuries identified the Psalms with David. And as a matter of fact, if you read the Hebrew commentaries, you can get a translation of that, but I can't read Hebrew. I can pick out words, but I can't read it. But I've read Jewish commentaries on the Psalms, and the, the rabbis of ancient times can identify each psalm with a particular incident in David's life. These were the praises of David. The Tehalim is the word for psalms, which means praises. They're the prayers of David in praise. They're the prayers of David in thanksgiving. They're the prayers of David in supplication and the prayers of David in repentance. There's all these different kinds of psalms that David wrote. We know David's prayer life probably better from the psalms than we know our own lives. It's all there. It's all spelled out for us. So we take a look at the psalms. One of the things I did in the course of my 45 years is I preached from through all the Psalms, and ultimately wrote devotional guides for every one of them. 
Some, some of the psalms, like Psalm 119, get a lot more than one devotional guide because that's a really long psalm. And, and so I spent a lot of time studying the psalms and thinking about the psalms. And, and I realized suddenly, there's the answer. How did David encourage his heart in the Lord? He did it in his prayers. And we can, we can study, we can learn about it. So we'll, get, we'll look at that. Let's look at this. But interesting, this word encouraged. Let's start with that. This word encouraged is chazak in Hebrew. And it means to strengthen or to encourage 12 times in the Old Testament. It, it's in a context that means to carry out repairs. Isn't that helpful? David's heart was broken. He wept until he had no more strength to weep. Everything had been going so well. Escape after escape, success after success. It was all good. And then this happens. And it all falls apart. And his own crew is talking about killing him. They'll appoint a new leader. The bottom has dropped out. Disaster has happened. And the broken man needs to be fixed. And the broken church needs to be repaired. Can I get an amen to that? We're a broken congregation. There's hurts. There's broken hearts. We'd like things to be the way they were. We'd like restoration. We need repair. David got his heart repaired in the Lord. Well, let's look at how. Let's look at his prayers. First of all, when David prayed, he was praying out of a recognition of what a disaster he'd faced. I, I think of Psalm 63 here. In the King James, I love the King James in this respect. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. It's like being drunk, disoriented, not able to think clearly because we have seen hard things. That's the context here. What does David do? I'm going to start with this. There's no particular order to this, but I want to start with this because revival, which is a kind of repair, starts always with repentance. Every time in the history of the church, revival takes place, it starts with repentance. We've had a discussion up in the Minnesota Association of the NAB. One of our pastors came with a letter of rebuke written to Governor Waltz, calling him to account for all of the wicked things that have happened over the past year or so in Minnesota. Minnesota strives to become a destination state for abortion. They want to provide for people to come from out of state where abortion is illegal. It's a destination state for uh, trans surgery so that other states where children need their parents' permission to get this kind of surgery, they can, they can be brought by the experts into Minnesota and have it done in Minnesota. This is state law in Minnesota. No, this is, I think, some very wicked stuff, no question about it. And, and he said, we need to take a stand. And, and so he had this very long three-page rebuke to Governor Waltz. And he wanted an appointment with Waltz so he could go and deliver this to them. So we had a meeting about this. And, you know, some people were a little bit reluctant to that. And I can tell you this for certain, not because they were afraid of what Governor Waltz might do or that they thought what he did was right, but because they thought, is that our role? And, and one of the deacons, or now elders at Riverview, uh, I've known for a long time, Matt, uh, spent some time reading through, three times he read through the New Testament, looking for examples of when the apostles or anybody else in the New Testament rebuked a government leader for what they were doing wrong. You know how many examples there are? There aren't any. 
So he was rebuked for that, uh, for the Marcionite heresy of ignoring the Old Testament. But he, hadn't, he didn't read three times through the Old Testament. I've thought about the Old Testament. There aren't many occasions where that happens in the Old Testament either. Let me explain this. Oh, yes, John the Baptist rebuked Herod, but not because he was a crummy governor. And he was a crummy governor. He was an off-with-your-heads kind of governor. That's not, he rebuked him for marrying his brother's wife. He rebuked him for adultery. Herod was a pretend Jew. You know, it was Herod's job, by the way, to appoint the high priest. I mean, he had a religious position, and this man had committed adultery. And that's why John the Baptist called him. I didn't call him out because of laws that he made or because he behaved wickedly as a governor. It was his personal sin against God. Revival doesn't start with us rebuking the government. Revival starts when we admit our sin. That's where it, it's every time in the history of Christianity, in the history of the church, revival begins when God's people look at themselves in the mirror of God's word and in the light given by the Holy Spirit, and they repent and they ask for forgiveness. And they get it. This most recent revival that happened down in Kentucky began with students continuing a college chapel, and they began to repent of their sin. And it went on for days and for weeks. This is how revival starts. And people were coming from all over the world to participate. And they said, as you approach the chapel building, you could sense the presence of God. Why? Because God's people, they weren't preaching against Joe Biden. They weren't rebuking the governor. They were confessing their sin to the Lord. When that happens, the earth shakes. Because people just don't admit they're wrong without the work of God happening in their heart. So we start with repentance. That's what David did. I'm sure, I'm sure he encouraged his heart in the Lord, recognizing, first of all, his own responsibility in what happened. Psalm 83, 5, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. The great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You know, we, this, just, we just raise this as a, a question here. I, I think about David's life frequently, and I think about this. I, he was a great man of God. He's called a man after God's own heart. Why? Well, he did great things, but here's why I think. First of all, he was always willing to take responsibility when he did something wrong. He was willing to repent. Yep, I did it. It's my sin. It's my fault. Whatever portion that was. And sometimes he made bad decisions, very questionable decisions. What in the world drove him to go to Gath? I know Solomon was, I mean, Saul rather, was after him, chasing him down out there. But nevertheless, of all the places to go, why go to Gath, the home of Goliath? where he was known to be a danger and a threat. And I think part of this thought here, as he's dealing with the consequences of that, is a recognition of, why did I go there in the first place? What, you know, why, would, why did we even have Ziklag? Why didn't we have some other town? Why didn't we make our own town? Whatever. Why did we take this town? And now, <clears throat> because we're off doing the king of Gath's dirty work, supposedly, as his bodyguard, we weren't home. And the Amalekites came and they burnt our town. Now, I, you know what? God, I did that. I, I'm the one that brought this crew out and away from Ziklag and, and brought us, and etc. Here's my responsibility. Now, I, I didn't organize the Amalekite raid, but here's my part of the problem. And, and as we work for healing as a congregation, as, as we look for restoration and repair, there has to be a willingness to look at what did I do wrong. In any kind of conflict, it would be very rare unless you are Jesus Christ 
for there not to be some responsibility on both sides. Even if it's 1% or 2%, whatever, I need to name that. Here's, here's what I failed to do, or here's what I did wrong, or here's what I didn't understand, whatever. And I didn't do my bit, and that's sin. Because I have a responsibility to the body of Christ and to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I may send your thoughts off here and you're not going to listen to another word I say. So, but I had to say this this morning. I don't know enough about what happened to say anything detailed about it. All I know is human nature is such that we need to come to God with repentant hearts. Or there's not going to be any healing or any restoration. So... Let's start with that, okay? That's where, I think that's where David started. God, I recognize, here I am. My own men want to kill me. But didn't I do something to make this? Absolutely. What was I thinking? That I took this crew to Gath in the first place. That I took this town out in the wilderness in the first place. I have to take some responsibility for making a bad decision. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. So let's start with that, first of all. When there's a kind of prayer service that can be held in situations where there needs to be reconciliation. But the rule is this, no finger pointing, unless it's in this direction. And we will have prayers of not accusation, but of repentance. Lord, here's what I did wrong, and I want to repent of that. And the earth will shake, and the Spirit of God will be present and a revival will start. Do you realize what an opportunity this is? And, and by the way, why is it so hard to pray? We had this meeting up in Minnesota about three or four weeks ago on a Saturday morning. The moderator got up and said, let's open with a word of prayer and prayed for less than a minute. And then we, we jaw-jawed for 90 minutes or two hours, something like that, back and forth about this issue. And I said at the end, I'm, I'm the, <clears throat> I don't hold any position up there. I'm just a retired guy. But I sit up and I said, here, I have a question. What if we started this meeting by praying for 90 minutes instead of for less than a minute and then tried to, to decide what to do? What a shocking idea. You don't read about many business meetings in the New Testament church. What do you have instead? Prayer meetings. That's right. Prayer, prayer, prayer. As, as we go through this transition process, if that's what we're going to do, if that's God's will, we need to pray and be committed to prayer. <clears throat> Times of individual prayer, I, I suggest prayer triads. I'll explain this. Three, three men praying together, three women praying together, different groups, but meeting regularly. I suggest corporate prayer times where we focus on this and, and we start with repentance. Where do we go wrong? so that God can bless us, so the earth will shake. Next thing, praise and thanks. Praise to God for who he is. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word chesed, I'll mention that a little bit later again. This is God's definition of who he is. It comes from uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6. <clears throat> God meets Moses on the mountain. And God reveals himself to Moses. And this is what God says about himself. This is, where, this is repeated, by the way, several times in Scripture. Where did it come from? It's God's revelation of himself. This isn't Moses' idea about God. This is God's idea about God. And what does he say? He is merciful that means mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't do what we deserve to have done to us. In other words, he doesn't squash us like a cockroach. He lets us live. He is merciful. He's gracious. That's when God does for us what we do not deserve. It's the negative and the positive. Mercy and grace. And God is rich in mercy and grace. Or we wouldn't be here right now. If, if God were not merciful and gracious, the planet Earth would be a burning radioactive cinder. But God has born with us and has shown mercy and grace to us. We wouldn't be born again. Jesus would never have come if for God were not 
merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious, and he is slow to anger. He bears with us. I don't know, there might be one or two of you here who has committed the same sin more than once. Possibly. I know there's one for sure, and he's preaching right now. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, we should lay aside the sin which so easily besets us. I think, like a lot of preachers about that verse, that he's talking about the sin that so easily besets us. I mean, the specific sin that so easily besets us, because we've all got at least one. We keep doing it. And we have to go back to God on our knees and confess it and repent of it and say, God, please forgive me again. Here I am again. I fell in the ditch again. What have you found out about that? Did God ever say, no, sorry, oh, I forgot to tell you last time, you had 3,012 chances and this is the 3,013th time you've come. Sorry, this time I'm all out of forgiveness. Does he ever do that to you? No, because he's slow to anger. And he's merciful and gracious. Praise God. David is praising God for being who he is. God, I did it again. It was my bright idea to go to Gath and bring my crew there. I did it again. I made a decision without really checking with you. David did that every once in a while. And he was a man after God's own heart. And then abounding in hesed, in steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed. And that's a word that requires not just a definition, but about a three-page article in the theological journal. But it refers to that love of God that never lets us go. That covenant love of God, whereby he has promised and he's sworn an oath to love us and never let us go. We let him go more than once, but he never lets us go. Yes, abounding in it. He's rich in it. He's got a limitless supply of chesed. And faithfulness, and he's true to his word. You see, he keeps his promise. This is God, praise God for who he is. Then he thanked God for what he had done. There's a subtle difference of who he is leads to what he does, but there you go, God saves. Psalm 18, 16 and 17, David sings to the Lord. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. That's a psalm that applies, it seems like, specifically to this incident. Maybe so. He meant many such incidents. Psalm 7.1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. He thanks God for what he's done. God always saves him. So let's remember what God has done. He's delivered us in the past. He'll do it again. Then as David prayed, he went on and, and then he asked God for what he needed. I'm sorry, I got ahead. Psalm 7.1 is that. Save me from my pursuers. Psalm 40.13. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. What do you need from God? The book of James tells us we have not because we ask not. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. God is ready to answer our prayers if we will just ask him. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Get that heart cleaned out from its sin and repent of that. And then ask God for what you need. David did that. That's how he encouraged his heart in the Lord. He trusted the Lord and in faith believing, he asked God for what he needed. So prayer. Prayer is so important, so key. We have to be a people of prayer during this time of recovery and restoration. Then David also meditated, and I'm just going to go over some of the same ground here again very quickly, but David was one who encouraged meditation. Now, what is meditation? Meditation is just thinking about, mulling it over, maybe reciting memory verses out loud, but it's going things over and over and over. Now, I don't know if any of you are like me on this, but when my mind comes up against, well, the canary situation, and I'm stunned and whatever, my first response is, what is it, Pat? Full-blown panic. Worst-case scenario thinking. That's my natural response. Maybe some of you are like that. Not everybody's like that, I know. But that's what I do. 
And I, I, will, I am very, very tempted to think about what else could go wrong and what are the implications of this thing that's gone wrong and how much worse can it get? That's a real fruitful way to spend your mental energy. But that's what I do if you just leave me on my own. Your mind is going to do something. When you're in a state of shock, it's going to do something. And worst case scenario thinking is definitely a possibility. Here's another thing that can happen for some people. If they've been wronged by somebody, their mind starts thinking about ways to get even. And all kinds of revenge fantasies begin to come. And what can I do? And sometimes, unfortunately, that leads to action. That's why it's good not to leave a lot of loaded guns laying around the house. Sometimes people get shot by other people because they, somebody loses their temper. So, you know, make, make yourself go through a number of steps there before you go to that far. But that's another thing we can do with our thoughts. Here's the shocking news. You can choose what to think about. What about that? Oh, here's what you could do instead. You could meditate. You could think about, you could let the little gerbil turn this wheel, the wheel that's of Scripture. That's what David did. And so what did he do? He thought about who God is. Psalm 63, 6. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Wow, how about that? He could have been panic-stricken. Worst case scenario, he could have been plotting revenge against those who were trying to kill him. And instead, as he lay there not able to sleep, he thought about who God was, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithful. That's who God is. Think about that. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in hesed. That's what David thought about. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness. Think about who God is. That love that will never let us go. Remember that Jesus loves you. At the end of his life, the great theologian, I don't agree with all his theology, but he's considered a great theologian, Karl Barth was asked, what is the most profound truth of Scripture, Professor Barth, that you've learned? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God for you in Jesus Christ, what does Paul write in Romans 8.39? Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's chesed. The love that will not let you go. The love that never fails you. In the midst of things being broken, isn't that a good thing to remember? Has God stopped loving this church? Has God stopped loving you? Absolutely not. What's God's intention? God's intention is to bring about restoration and healing and revival. Let's turn our thoughts to the Lord. Let's meditate on God's word. That's why we went to Awana when we were little kids, so we learned scripture that we could think about, Psalm 1-2. But the righteous person delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, which is God's word, he meditates day and night. What did you memorize those verses for if it wasn't that you could go over them when your mind wants to run on a gerbil wheel of worst-case scenario or revenge or anything else negative, right? Think about the Word of God. So when astonished with that wine of astonishment, instead of despair and panic, meditate on who God is. Remember what he's done and meditate on his Word. I am happy to report this works. Amen? This works. This actually works. Why? Because God is real. We don't imagine him. He's revealed himself to us. He's actually there. He really does love us. God demonstrates his own love toward us. 
that when, well, we were perfect, no, no, no. Well, we were sinners, Christ died for us. There isn't any question about the fact that he loves us. And I've seen this work. I saw this work at First Baptist of Spencer, Iowa. And we had a corporate prayer meeting there. And people were sitting around on a Saturday morning. And I talked about repentance. And I just said, let's have some prayers of repentance. And people began to pray. And not only were they praying, we were sitting in a circle. We had a pretty good turnout. Maybe 30 people showed up on a Saturday morning. And one lady got up and went across the circle. Somebody on the other side. And got down on her knees and said something quietly to this person. And somebody else got up and went over and said something. What was going on there? Was, was she sharing a chocolate chip cookie recipe over there, you think? No. I think, I, no, I know what she was saying. She was saying, I, you know, what, brother, I, I wronged you. I, I had a bad attitude about you. Whatever. I, I've had hard feelings, but I'm, I, would you forgive me? And forgiveness was being asked for and being given that morning. And from that moment on, everything changed. That church had had a pastor that had gone through a moral failure. It was a particularly nasty thing that happened. And he, uh, <clears throat> he was a guy they really loved and that loved them. If only he had been one of those uh, jerks from California that looked on his nose. They had two of those pastors. Don't get a guy from California here. That would be my advice. I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but there were two there that were just terrible. If it had been one of those guys, it would have been no big. But there was a, it was the local guy who they loved and who loved them that had his moral failure. And then he became a real jerk about it. He held the church up. Well, I'll quit if you give me a big, you know. So they gave him a big check, and he went away. And there, but there were some, some of the deacons wanted to get him back in the pulpit after a month of sitting down. The kind of moral failure he had needed more than a month. And, and there were other people who said, if that, kid, if that guy even walks in this building again, I'm just going to clock him one. There was a lot of strong feelings about that. Well, he left then with his paycheck, his last paycheck, and the... Uh, and there were still hard feelings. And there were people in that congregation who hadn't spoken to one another for years. It, had been, it was about eight or ten years earlier that this had happened. And they would come in Sunday morning, they would sit you know, opposite sides of the sanctuary, and they wouldn't look at each other, and they wouldn't speak to each other, and they'd go out. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? And they kept coming to church, I'll give them that, you know, even though they had this tension, whatever. And that morning, it all changed. In one morning, because there was repentance and there was forgiveness. So I saw it work. And a lot of other good things happened. And they got the pastor they wanted. Now they're looking again, unfortunately, because that wonderful guy that they got has, has a physical heart problem and, and isn't strong enough to be in the pulpit anymore. So now they're looking again. But I think they're in a much sounder place now because all that bitterness is gone from that congregation because there was repentance and there was forgiveness. For repentance... Sin identified and repented of, and forgiveness asked for and given. Wonderful healing can happen. I saw it happen also, I want to say, just a word of hope. I'm going to go on a little bit here, just a little bit more. In Garner, Iowa. Garner had a split over the COVID thing, and they had a pastor who, I don't know, just didn't get it in some ways. Uh, he, he was a really doctrinally sound guy. I, I, I like... Uh, you know, being a Baptist and having some Reformed theology, up to a point, I'm dispensational when it comes to Israel, and I believe in a literal millennium, and I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and whatnot, and Reformed people really don't believe in that. But he, he, was, he was an okay guy, and, and he really preached good doctrinal sermons. They had good teaching there for a long time, but he never related to anybody. And when it came to the COVID time, he just locked that church down, and they were meeting during the summer out in the sun on the lawn next to the church with everybody, every chair six feet apart from every other chair outside and wearing masks. And then when it came time to go inside, he was insisting that everybody had to wear a mask and had to be six feet apart so they'd be scattered all over the building. And he'd be in his study and they would have a TV camera on there and that's how he would preach. And people there wanted to have a pastor they could see and not on TV. And, and there were some people standing up with him and saying, no, we have to do what our pastor says. And he had some reasons, personal health reasons, and a little boy who needed monthly treatments up at Children's Hospital in St. Paul who could not get COVID and live. 
So I understand, there were some reasons for this, but he never said, help me out with this. It was, no, the Bible says we have to obey the government, and we have to do these things. And there was a split over that. And there were some people that left because he was doing this stuff, and there were other people that left when the church basically parted ways with him, and he finally resigned and left. Oh, you shouldn't have treated the pastor that way. So you had a lot of confusion there. And, and I'm happy to say people stepped up. Now, here's, here's what is good here, by the way, and I told your deacons this. I already know this. I don't know much about what happened, but I do know that there's been an attempt to reach out to people who haven't been back. I do know that. And, they, and, and there's a pretty good idea of who has gone away. And here, unfortunately, in Garner, they had never, never even taken that step. I asked, well, who's gone that isn't coming back? And they didn't know. They weren't even sure who's gone. So that was not good. And, and yet... Okay, and yet, there was healing in that congregation. And there was forgiveness, and people stepped up and, and did the work that needed to be done and did the prayer that needed to be done. And, and things are going great. They found a wonderful pastor, and uh, things are just going great guns there. God is going to do that here. He is going to do that here. If, if, if we pray and we turn to him. I believe that. You believe that? Amen? God is going to do that here. You know why? Because God loves you. Jesus loves you. And he wants to glorify himself in this congregation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word tells us how to do things. And uh, well, we had to do a little homework with this occurrence in David's life where he encouraged his heart in you and suddenly realizing, wait a minute, we know how he did this in prayer and in meditation, remembering who you are, remembering what you've done, turning away from his sinfulness, asking you for what he needed and thinking about who you are and what you've done and thinking about your word. Lord, help us to be a people who pray, a people who turn their thoughts to you, people who are obedient in asking for and giving forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray.